0: Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 91. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How you been holding up this past week, Fuleman? Not too bad. The Leafs have returned. How about you? Uh, Yeah, it's been good. The Leafs have won three in a row, which is nice. We put ourselves back into a playoff spot, which is nicer. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, that's basically all that goes on in my life. It's just the Leafs,
1: so... <laughs> That's how we're equipped to do this podcast, is our deranged obsession with the hockey team. Yeah, but the Leafs did win three in a row, and they weren't always pretty, but they all count. And now they're looking at a game on Monday night against the Florida Panthers that has enormous divisional implications because the Panthers are their main competition for the third seed in the Atlantic. So we're obviously going to hope that they don't come out and get totally crushed like they did the last time we played the Panthers. Um, but yeah, I mean, winning is good, spoiler alert. And so it's been very positive to see the team actually put some points up on the board and claw itself back into contention. We're going to need every point we can get down the stretch for obvious reasons, but also because right now the bottom of the East and the third seed in the Atlantic are all kind of trending towards being really high cutoff bars. Like, it looks like they're all going to be competitive with good teams. It's not going to be one of those years where you just kind of limp in with 93 points.
0: Yeah. So, we have our work cut out for ourselves. But, you know, as we've covered, the Leafs have managed to dig out of the hole that they were in uh, prior to the coaching change. Mm -hmm. So, I guess we should talk about the games this week. Um, Started off with a game on the 27th, which I believe was Monday, against the Predators. Mm -hmm. Which was... I guess that was a fun game. Um, it was a comfortableish win, I
1: thought. Yeah, they played well. I thought that they were good, and that was satisfying. Nashville is having kind of a down year relative to what we expected. You know, we thought maybe with adding to Shane this year, they were going to be a serious player in the West, maybe even the best team in the West, depending on how you thought St. Louis was going to follow up their year. And instead, they've kind of scuffled. They're now at the point where they're rapidly falling away from the race for a playoff spot in the West, so they're really struggling. They could still surge back into it, don't get me wrong. They're they've got games in hand now that I look at it, and so they're only three or four points back. But for a team that, you know, on paper should be really, really good, it hasn't really been there. Still. Um they're enough that I was kind of worried about facing them. They're in, still intimidating. They still have great defensemen. And so, yeah, that was a very satisfying win, I thought. More so maybe than the other two where we kinda, <laughs> we made it look difficult in some yeah, of the I other mean, I two think, games.
0: I think the Stars game was just, like, a we didn't play that well. And I didn't see all of this game, but from the parts that I did see, it was, um, we were quite sloppy at times. Uh, yeah. Dallas kind of took and maintained control of the flow of the game in the second period essentially um and we we got we were kind of opportunistic and Anderson played quite well which always which always helps essentially um but yeah like in that game we seem to have there's times where I think the Leafs especially under this system where they really rely on their skill not just to you know, make game-breaking plays, but just to do everything, right? There's like a very small margin of error.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So the, the games where you know a bunch of them are just at like ninety percent of what they normally are, ends up with them looking like a terrible team at times, or like a like almost an amateur team.
1: Yeah, th- what makes them stand out is their capacity to like every now and then suddenly they're going to burst out and do something magical. And when they have a long stretch without doing that, and this also happened, I thought, against Ottawa, uh, they go through long stretches where you're like, are these guys even that good? And then they'll have some brilliant sequence where you're like, oh, these guys are the best in the world. But there is a distinct element of kind of waiting on the talent to just kind of bust on out. And when it's not doing so, it can be a little bit frustrating. But we did pick up the two points in Dallas, which was...
0: Yeah, and and I, I think, like the leafs sometimes especially offensively if they're not all the way there it can result in a lot of kind of crappy shots from good players mm-hmm. right cuz a huge part of the leafs offensive system is getting their offensive playmakers the puck in what is ostensibly a not very dangerous area of the ice it's like the middle of the ice at the blue line right but from there you know they can do a lot of things and create havoc with the with the off off puck movement and, you know, giving William Nienend or Mitch Marner or John Tavares um, or Austin Matthews the puck there, even if it's not a dangerous area, they still have the puck with time and space, and they can do a lot with that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But when it's, when that isn't coming off, those plays result in a lot of 20 or a lot of, like, 45-foot shots from Austin Matthews.
1: Yeah, and sometimes he'll still put them in, but that's not exactly what we're aiming for when we set the system up. And against a team that is quite on the ball defensively, and when the Leafs don't quite seem to test the defensive structure. This is actually something that uh, I first read it phrased this way. I heard the idea before, but I like the way he put it. Uh, Justin Bourne at The Athletic over the summer described Ilya Mikhaev as testing the defense. You know, like he would get in just enough that somebody had to move to do something about him. And then he would slip away. Or he would make a pass. Or he would do something to try and take advantage of that little bit of space that you are created. So when, you know, they talk about getting your feet moving all the time on hockey broadcasts. But if you make the other guy move his feet a little bit to stop you, that generates the kind of movement that we're looking for. When the Leafs are kind of more static and they're sustaining pressure around the outside, it feels a little bit like they're playing ring around the Rosie and they're not actually going anywhere. It's just like we formed this very nice perimeter and we've quarantined the defense of their own zone. And now how are we gonna get a good shot out of it? Right. And so you know, the big use of the skill is that they can break into that defensive structure or they can make players move to try and cover them and make mistakes.
0: Yeah. And at least we're we're better in the in the third period than I think in any other period against the stars. Mm-hmm. Um so we're I know think Ottawa actually. Yes, yeah. and I think that kind of that sticks out in your mind when you think about the game. You think about the most recent aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in, in, I remember in the PPP recap, there was, I think Katya did the recap for... I she, I don't know if she did the recap, but there, I don't know if Briggs dude did. And he commented that, you know, hey, the Stars kind of like dummy the Leafs, especially in the second period. Like, at one mm-hmm. point, shot attempts were 15-3 to three for them. And, you know, we can talk about the relationship between shot attempts and goals and how it's weaker than ever. But there is no reasonable plan in which you want to say yep we're going to get outshot 15 to 3 and everything will be fine like that, <laughs> that's not the desire for any team no right um and people pointing, out, hey no i thought we did well and like the stars didn't actually generate a whole lot and i think a part of that is because we did much better in the third mm-hmm. right but the reality is you know those shots did happen they they do have the stars did generate you know quite a few decent chances and um It wasn't a game where we had, like, a 10% chance to win based on the chances, but we were probably at, like, a 40% chance to win. But, you know, 40% events happen, and I'm glad they did in that case.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's a a fair summation.
0: And then against Ottawa... So, I I think Marner said something like this to the effect after the game of, we we didn't expect this to be an exciting game. Which is a very (laughs) um, nice way of saying that... Ottawa is dull to watch, which is smart for them, right? They don't have offensive talent. They want a low event game to the extent possible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to try and like take advantage of a variance, essentially, essentially. Right? And and they, by and large, do a decent job of that. We've commented on this a couple times, but Ottawa has, especially given their talent, surprisingly decent overall metrics,
1: yeah, they finally, like, their record finally collapsed in the last six weeks or so. For a while, they were hanging around, not really in contention for a playoff spot, but enough that they could still kind of reminisce about the the Andrew Hammond hamburger run that they went on a couple years ago, where they surged back into contention because he basically just stopped losing ever. Now they're, like, 15 points out. So it's like that's kind of over. Yeah, and their but, numbers
0: have, have cratered a bit in the past few weeks. Yeah. Um, but they're still essentially run-of-the-mill bad and not like completely terrible, awful, worst team in the league by a long shot, which is what a lot of, them, a lot of people thought they would be.
1: Yes. Uh, you know, they're clearly a cut above, say, Detroit. And they're still kind of in sniffing distance where you could envision them getting the second overall pick. Or, well, you could always envision that. Because they could win a lottery, but they could finish second last still. But I, I grudgingly respect a lot of what Ottawa has been able to do this year, because it's looked like a pretty effective tank to me. And yet they haven't gone full Buffalo, you know, where like they've really put on a product on the ice that's basically AHL caliber. So, yeah, they gummed up the works. They always seem to play hard. They also have several ex-leafs on the roster. In Tyler Ennis, Connor Brown, Nikita Zaitsev, Ron Hainsey. I don't know how fondly or not each of those guys remembers his time in Toronto. Uh, the impression I get is Nikita Zaitsev doesn't especially. <laughs> but there may have been a bit of an element of revenge game. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some money on the board in the dressing room. It's for that hockey convention. And so certainly Ottawa came to play at the best of the Ottawa Senators' ability, and so they made it a close game.
0: Yeah, and um, I mean, again, you look at the top line numbers, and the Leafs kind of dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a fair reflection of the game, especially in the third. Um, but even before then, the Leafs were getting a good amount of shots and more chances. But the, the Sens, the Sens were essentially counterpunching, right? And mm-hmm. counterpunching against the, against the Leafs is a decent strategy because their entire system lends itself to you know giving up odd man rushes especially if you know people aren't at 100 Mm percent. so it's a game that felt nervier than the stats probably indicated it should
1: yeah i mean michael hutchinson was called upon to make multiple good saves which is something that he has now remembered how to do which is kind of impressive (laughs) he's been pretty respectable lately. He's taken some of the pressure off to, we need to get a backup right this instant, or we are going to lose every single game our backup starts for the rest of the year. Uh, That's how it felt, including to me, uh, right around the start of December. But also, um, the the Leafs did have that late surge in the third period, where it really seemed like they did everything but score. And I think that that one kind of juiced some of the metrics in their favor, but two, it was a big change from what was previously a real slog of a game. And so you kind of have to tip your hat to the Sens and running a sort of effective trap with really limited personnel.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I didn't watch um, much of the first period, uh, if Mm -hmm. any, actually. And the numbers there are very positive for the Leafs to the same degree that they were in the third.
1: My eye test didn't like them. And so, take it with a grain of salt. But I distinctly remember William Nylander breaking in uh, quite quickly on a breakaway. And then there was about 15 minutes in the period where it was like, gee, is anything happening at all? Like, it felt like playing for a tie, almost. hmm Yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of um, kind of where it's at. By and large, you know, the Leafs looked like, in the end, as you say, by the numbers, they looked like a team that was playing a much worse team. Like, they clearly outplayed Ottawa. But, yeah, it, it wasn't a complete blowout by any means. And it took an overtime power play for us to really put this one away. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, there was a bit of a weird thing last night, though. Mm-hmm. Kasperi Kapanen. So, Kasperi Kapanen did not come out for pregame warm-ups. And because we hadn't heard anything prior to that about it, everyone thought, wait, what? And there was much debate as to has he been traded? And then the Leafs uh, said, Sheldon Keefe will explain after the game what happened. And so everyone was kind of on tenor hooks. They noticed Ka- Kapanen was in the press box. They wondered, is he going? Has he finally been traded, as has been so often rumored, for a defenseman? And no, nope, apparently not. Sheldon Keefe said Kapanen did not play due to internal accountability. We don't know what he's being held accountable for. I have no idea if this is proportionate or if he mispracticed or if he did something else. Could be anything. But I found it kind of curious how the Leafs organization handled it because they said that something came to their attention on Friday They talked about it. They slept on it. They made the decision on Saturday morning not to have him play on Saturday night. Okay. And there was no morning skate on Saturday morning, apparently. But it would not have been that hard to just talk to a reporter and say, uh, Kasperi Kapanen is being sat for disciplinary reasons. Uh, This is about internal accountability, if you want to get that phrase. The end. Instead, the way that they did it made it much more of a talking point than I think it would otherwise be. This is Toronto, so everything is a talking point. Everything is a circus. But by having it be sort of a surprise at game time, and then have everyone waiting through the game wondering what was going to happen, and then answering kind of vaguely and saying, on Monday you'll talk to Kapanen, And so I don't know if Kapanen will clarify what happened or if he'll just say, I apologize to my teammates and I want to move on. I have no idea. All of it was kind of weird. Like it felt like they were rubbing his nose in it a little bit to me in that they drew more attention to doing this than I thought was really necessary. I don't again, I don't know what happened. And so I'm kind of fumbling in the dark here, but it seems odd to me that they would handle it in this way and you know the Leafs are a very wealthy organization with very smart people who know this market like do you think that they did this by accident I don't know
0: yeah it's, it's just it's odd um, mm-hmm. I think when we were discussing this in our Slack last night the word melodramatic came up a lot
1: mm-hmm.
0: where it's like it, it seems a bit over the top Assuming yeah. it's something relatively minor, which it appears to be, given that you know they they're not like suspending him, right? Which is a more official thing that I think has actual it, like the terms under which you can do that is probably laid out in the CBA um, and involves like forfeiture of pay and something like and stuff like that. It they said it's a one-time thing, mm-hmm. right? So it it just seems like giving him a little bit of a public kick in the pants for whatever reason, and we'll know more about it, I suppose, on Monday. But, yeah, it it just seems like, why why did you do this in such a way that is going to make it a much bigger deal than if you just said what was happening on Saturday morning?
1: Yeah. Now, there is some sort of precedent for this, I suppose, with the Austin Matthews thing. And I want to clarify, I don't know what happened with Kapanen. Plenty of players get scratched for a game for missing team breakfast or missing practices. I don't know if it's that or if it's any of a thousand other things. But with the Austin Matthews thing, they kind of let Matthews take some heat in public when he had to acknowledge he hadn't talked to the organization after his incident in Arizona over the summer and that he would kind of tried to keep it under wraps. And I thought that Dubas and them kind of made a point of you got to own this and you got to kind of take the heat in public a little bit and admit that what you did was irresponsible and that you didn't handle it in a responsible way. And I understood why they were doing that, but they were, they made a choice to allow the player to face the music in public, which I'm sure was not a lot of fun for him, but they said, this is how it is. And then, so with Kapanen, again, it would seem to me that they are trying to add an element of external accountability to the internal accountability that they've been talking about. And it is curious to me why they're doing that. Maybe they have a very good reason. Maybe not. And so I can't do much more than to observe that this seems to have happened. And I suspect it's not accidental. And I'm really curious as to why. It's not a very satisfying resolution to this bit, I know, but... It was just very strange to me. Just kind of strange.
0: The way they've gone about it has made it more likely and more easy for rumors to spread and be like, oh, I heard Kapanen did X. I heard he did Y, right? As opposed Mm -hmm. to heading it off at the pass. And it's interesting that you bring up the Matthews thing because the Matthews thing would have been resolved a lot easier if he was forthright about it and if he didn't try to make it go away quietly. Yeah. Um. And if you You know, there's other issues to deal with with that, which I'm not getting into here. It's just, like, from a media perspective. Um, you know, kind of the, the cover-up was problematic, and I think for a lot of people and a lot of fans kind of soured their opinion of Matthews to a degree. Um, mm-hmm. Because that, that isn't kind of a very responsible way to deal with things. In this case, it looks like they're trying to... I guess the... There's no like cover up to speak of. They're not trying to keep this quiet, but they could have also, you know, been upfront about it and also made it less of a dramatic thing. I suppose of like, oh, you're gonna have to wait three hours to this game until we discuss what happened here, which gives it like an air of like gravitas to it. And then when that happens, it's like, oh yeah, we're just gonna wait till Monday.
1: Yeah, It's like, just was odds. Yeah, like there you can no do news. a one paragraph statement on paper, and then just say, after that, this is a matter of internal accountability, we're handling it internally, that's it. And again, I'm not saying that they were wrong not to do that, because it's again, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what their basis was. It's just, this seems intentional to me. And I, I just, I couldn't help remarking on that, because it was the source of a lot of chatter last night. So
0: Yeah. And part of the reason it's the source of a lot of chatter is because... As we've discussed many times kapanen is one of the only players we can move and get something back for him that of any actual value Mm -hmm. right um and there's been a lot of rumors going around right now about the leafs being into a defenseman um or not a defenseman every defenseman if there is a defenseman (laughs) the leafs have been rumored to acquire them Mm-hmm. Uh, so this ranges from, you know, Brad Pesci to Matt Dumba to Alec Martinez to, you know, you name it. Yeah. Um, and Kapanen's almost always the spare part going the other way because now now that William Nylander's <laughs> scoring, he's too valuable to move.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a swiftly rebutted rumor that went around last night that Matt Dumbo was also sitting out in the Minnesota game and everyone kind of was like, oh, hey, maybe this is it. This is the oft-predicted trade. But that turned out not to be true because Matt Dumbo showed up and he did play. And so, yeah, it does seem that it was just purely a disciplinary thing. I don't know. You can tell that I'm kind of perplexed by how this all happened just because... Obviously, there's a lot we don't know, and you, you know, I again, I don't want to make this bigger than it is. I'm just confused. It seems like the organization made a conscious choice to make something unnecessarily dramatic. Yeah. So.
0: Um, yeah. We should uh, we speak a bit about yeah, Don. I guess
1: we should actually. mm Hmm. So he scares me <laughs> as a trade acquisition. Right. I'm afraid. Can you go into detail yeah. as to why so, that is? Okay, so Matt Dumbart seems like exactly the kind of guy that teams overvalue. I've talked a lot about how I'm kind of averse to very shot-happy defensemen who score lots of goals. Um, he's not doing it so much this year. He has three goals in 51 games. It's been a tough year for him, which is also partially why he's so often discussed as a trade candidate. But prior to this year, he had a whopping... 47 goals in the last four seasons, which for a defenseman is quite high production. He missed a lot of time last season, but he had a ton of goals in the games that he did play. And so I think that those top line numbers really pop out at you and they get players overvalued. And you can see where this is going. I'm thinking of Tyson Berry. Now, Matt Dumba has a physical element to his game that Matt um, Berry doesn't. But they're both... Uh, kind of trigger-happy defensemen who do score a lot, who are big offensive producers, but who maybe aren't the best in terms of their actual impact on driving play, in terms of their impact defensively. So far as we can measure, Matt Dumba's impact on those kind of metrics does not seem very good at all. It looks kind of worrisome to me. Now... There is more to it than that. And you were remarking to me before we came on air that there's more of a case for Dumba than I feel like there is.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I guess I'd preface this by saying I'm not an expert about Matt Dumba. And I would feel a little bit of trepidation um, acquiring him because Mm -hmm. of exactly the flaws you mentioned. I, I I don't think that's an inaccurate assessment of his game. He also has a contract that extends three more years after this one uh, at $6 million per year. So that's not a light financial commitment. He is, you know, he's 20, 25 right now, so it's not as if, you know, you're, you're, that's a contract that extends to what you would expect his twilight years to be. But still, like, if, you, if you're requiring Matt Dumba, you want to be sure he's pretty good. I'm not sure he's pretty good, but there are a couple things that, I guess, make me understand why we may be interested in him. And the comparison to Barry is one of them. So you mentioned Tyson Barry, and you know, it's no secret that neither of us have been fans of Tyson Barry's game this year, um, especially under Babcock, where he got off to like a really awful start. However, he his numbers under Keefe, as you know, we've talked about on the podcast, as I mentioned in a in an article I wrote about a week ago, have been quite good. They've been they've not been outstanding, amazing, like, best in the world. He's a top-pairing defenseman, uh, for sure. But they've been good, right? He's been, uh, I think, is that like a 52 to 53% course in expected goals, above that in goal differential, which is um, in part due to those strong underlings and also uh, some, some puck luck, right? Pucks going in for him and not going in for the opposition. If you judge him relative to his teammates on the Leafs, he looks... Uh, solid again as well so it, it's it's hard to quibble with the results of his play under Keith now th- I think one of the things that's worth mentioning is I don't think that Tyson Berry is really responsible necessarily for driving the play when he's on the ice I don't think he's doing anything to inhibit it but I think based on his career And based on, you know, the fact that we can't just throw away his sample under Babcock, that did happen. That should still factor in our mind to some extent. Based on that, I think his teammates, and in particular the forwards he's playing with, are are doing a lot of that. And I think, in general, the Leafs are a team that are driven by their forwards. So if you believe that to be the case, then to some extent, Barry's weakness in er, in driving play is mitigated to some degree right because if if you tend to think okay the forwards are going to be more responsible for that in this system and with the forwards that we have with them being so good in transition as long as he can make a decent first pass mm-hmm. we'll get out of our zone alright most of the time and once we get into the offensive zone he's going to get the puck in dangerous areas and if there's one thing Tyson Berry is unequivocally good at it is taking advantage of the puck being on a stick in the offensive zone he is a great offensive defenseman when he has the puck on a stick and with Dumba it's kind of the same so one thing that the Leafs are doing right now is and Kat just kind of described their system is it's an ideology almost right where everyone is playing with according to a pretty consistent set of principles Um, and those principles are we're going to use our speed and our skill as much as possible we're going to hold on to the puck as much as possible we're going to um, move our defensemen and our forwards around. We're going to swap them. We're going to have them rotate as much as possible. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it results in, in problems. But on the whole, it, it's it been working for the most part, right? Um, now, one of the flaws of this, which we've mentioned, is a lot of the times you will get players in positions that they're just not specialized for, right? You get mm-hmm. Cody Cc playing net front somehow, and William Nina, they're playing right D, it's like okay well maybe that position is a better maybe like that swap has allowed the puck to get into a more advantageous position for us but it's not the players we want taking advantage of those positions and it's it's just a trade off now with someone like Dumba and with Barry when they get the puck in da- those swaps of defensemen to forwards and those putting of defensemen in dangerous areas is now in agreement with their skill set. That's what they're good at. You're, you're essentially um, synergizing your ideology and the players that are operating under that ideology. Does that mean you're just leaning more in one direction? Yes, it does. But I can see the logic behind it. If you think that your system can insulate a player's weaknesses and magnify their strengths, then it makes sense, right? now. I don't know with 100% certainty that this is going to be the case that if we acquire someone like Matt Dumba. I don't know that it's going to work out all hunky-dory. But I can sort of see the right. logic, and I think, you know, something that it is important to keep in mind is that all our metrics of, even the ones that try and isolate for context, they, they are still system-dependent, they are still, they're not completely isolated from context. It's an indication of whether someone's succeeding in a certain role in a certain context. Right, as much as it tries to isolate from that context, it's it's not perfect at doing so. It's better than the alternatives. I trust it certainly a lot more than simple rel stats or simple wowies. But it's not it's not a be all and end all. And the one thing we can say about the Leafs is that I'm sure that they are aware of stuff like rel stats and even by row stats, Dumba doesn't look amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think they're ignorant of this. If they're making a decision to go after Dumba, it's because they think. They, they think that in the Leaf system and with a high-end group of forwards, which he has certainly never had in Minnesota, that he might be able to do more. Now, of course, this rumor might not even be true. So, you know, <laughs> it's just I can yeah, see. Yeah,
1: I mean, I- we do know that, I mean, Friedman has said that they've looked into him. That's as much as we got. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. They're apparently looking at a lot of options. Mm-hmm. You know, they're supposedly interested in every good defenseman on the market. As well they probably should be. you got to look at a lot of your options here. The Matt Dumba thing, like, I get it. And it's a, it's a lean-in, for sure. You know, it's saying, we are going to go all one way with this. And that's interesting. It's a move away from specialization in terms of assigning different roles. And it kind of contrasts with the idea of a Jake Muzzin um, extension to me a little bit. Now, Jake Muzzin can do a lot of things quite well. He's not the fastest skater, but he's quite effective. But he's more of a defensive presence. He seems to me like a different player than, you know, obviously Tyson Berry. And so I wonder a little bit what the internal discussion is there between... Do we want to kind of double down? Do we want more high skill, defensively iffy players? Do we want to just go all the way in and say, if we do this, we can eventually get to a point where we're, we really are just kind of outscoring our problems to a sufficient extent? I don't know. It's an interesting trade off. It looked like it was blowing up in our faces in the early returns under Babcock this year. Under Keefe, it kind of works. You have these stretches where I described it earlier as waiting for the skill to show up, or where, you know, sometimes it just blows up in your face because you're making these lateral passes along the blue line and suddenly you're facing an odd man rush coming at you. But maybe it is workable. Maybe this is kind of the best way to maximize the strategy we're using. I don't know. I have to admit, it doesn't get me to the point where I'm going to be happy if we trade for Matt Dumba. Yes. I'm no, too I, leery I, of it. Yeah. I,
0: I, I am too. And uh. like I'd prefer... In, insofar as the Leafs... Not insofar as the Leafs have a weakness. The Leafs have many weaknesses. But the Leafs' weakness is still... They're not a great defensive team. Right? And this doesn't address that. There's, They're one of the best offensive squads in the league. Right? I, hmm. I think only Washington has scored more goals than them. And... I don't have the numbers in front of me but at 5 on 5 I'd be surprised if we weren't in the top 5 in expected goals for and in actual goals for rate. The low-hanging fruit is if you can get this team to being, you know, above average defensively or like even good defensively. You're you're laughing. They're they're a great team all of a sudden.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: right? Um And I'd have to check the numbers under Keefe. Under Keefe, they've been better defensively than certainly they were in in years past, but they're still not great at it.
1: Yeah. Um, So
0: it's like... I don't know. In a sense, it feels like if you replaced a couple of the bad defenders with good defenders, even if they weren't as talented offensively, I think it would... There's a good argument that that does more for the Leafs than trying to make the best offense in the league or the second-best offense in the league slightly further away from the pack. It's hard to make marginal gains the higher up you go. Right? That's kind of my thinking.
1: Yeah. uh, It's kind of a balance there. I mean, I do also think when you add goal-scoring defensemen, they want to shoot. And if their shots are leading to secondary chances, or you know, just going in at a high enough rate. That's terrific. If you have uh, a superstar cast of forwards on the ice with them, it's going to take a lot to convince me that I want Matt Dumba to be shooting a lot of the time, and I've objected to this with Tyson Berry, too. It's not that he's bad at it. For a defenseman, he's a good shooter. He scores goals, and he's been effective in a lot of ways. He's generated some chances. But I don't love some of the outcomes there like there are a lot of times where I would prefer the shot to be more restrained and I know that this is absolutely going hard eyes over the new golden boy but Rasmus Sandin has that little wrister that he seems to get more on target and even that I prefer more than like a booming clapper a lot of this is eye test bias I have to admit and I am coming around to the point that you can't really deny Tyson Berry's results to the greatest extent. You know, you can add caveats and hedges and all that sort of thing, but it's working And for some given value of working. So, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see what they do. Matt Dumba is one of many names that we've heard. As we were saying, Friedman says they've kicked the tires on just about everybody. They've also looked at extending Jake Muzzin. Uh, do you want to go into that now?
0: Yeah, sure, we or might whatever. as well. I, I mean, extending Jake Muzzin yeah. is... It's a fraught decision. Uh, it's not an easy one mm-hmm. to make, and there's kind of a lot of pros and cons um, to it. Now, the first thing we have to level set about with Jake Muzzin is he is a good defensive defenseman. Um, he's not the he's somewhat limited offensively, but historically, and I think this year is is no exception, he's been solid defensively and good enough offensively that he's like a clear he's a clear plus to us
1: there are so few defensemen on the leafs that are credibly any kind of shutdown defenseman kevin likes to talk about this if it's not him who is it sort of thing like he's the guy who can play defense on a team that has very few people worthy of that description yeah and and so sorry, go he ahead. appeals in that respect yeah so, yeah oh, go ahead i'm done
0: yeah so it's it, it's just with with muzzin and as we covered last week it's probably going to cost more than someone would intuitively think to keep him Mm -hmm. right it's going to probably be a five-year deal above six million dollars
1: that wouldn't surprise me that wouldn't and
0: yeah possibly more and the thing is he's already 30 he'll be 31 by the end of the year do you want to bet on a physical early 30s defenseman Who relies on their physicality who isn't a great skater i'm not sure i do there's there's a very (laughs) reasonable chance that the deal that muzzin signs not just ends up being a poor deal but ends up being a disastrous deal ends up being a lutich level deal almost where he might be unplayable in three years
1: yes there is an extremely decent chance that that's true and age is ruthless Now, the Leafs can do certain things to mitigate that kind of risk, and maybe it's worth just looking at them quickly. We've done a lot of them with previous contracts. If you're really worried about the downside risk of one of these kind of contracts, but you still really want to get the player and you have to give term to do that, one of the first things you do is signing bonuses. The Leafs give everybody signing bonuses because they're rich and they can which means that a lot of the salary gets paid out on July 1st. This is a bit of a double edged sword. On the one hand, if you give someone signing bonuses, uh, they get their money earlier. They get a lot of it at once. Usually signing bonuses are paid on July 1st, although it's possible to vary that depending on the party's wishes. But once those bonuses are paid, it makes it a lot easier to trade the contract to a team that is more concerned with real dollars than with cap hit. Uh, You saw this over the summer. The Leafs made a couple of deals where they were paying bonuses to players and then trading them subsequently to teams that were more cash poor. You
0: can also also see this in every single Senators trade ever.
1: Yeah, it is remarkable the degree to which the Ottawa Senators have pursued guys who have had signing bonuses paid or who, in some other way, the team is not on the hook to actually give them any money or, sorry, to give them the money that they are owed uh, as per the AAV. The flip side of it is if you decide you want to buy the player's contract out, and Jake Muzzin is still well under 35, so we don't have to worry about the over 35 rules. What that does is it spreads Uh, two-thirds of the remaining money owed on the contract over double the time in years. It's a way of mitigating some of the cost. But signing bonuses can't be altered by buyout. Buyouts only affect real salaries. So if you're giving Jake Muzzin signing bonuses, you want to give him a bunch of them early. But if he has signing bonuses later, that means that the buyout is not as effective as you would want it to be. So there is a bit of a trade-off there and you have to decide, do I anticipate I'm going to gonna try to trade this contract in year four, or year five? Or do I anticipate I just want to buy it out? The famous uh, James Neal, Milan Lucic deal operated a lot around those factors over the summer. People were kind of fascinated by a deal between two players on awful contracts who were really struggling. Well, Milan Lucic's deal had a bunch of signing bonuses, and James Niels does not. So James Neal's will be easier to buy out. Uh, if Ken Holland is smart, he's going to buy him out relatively soon, I think. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, there are also no trade clauses. I expect Jake Muzzin will command some sort of no trade or no movement clause. But it's possible to vary those a little bit so that they kind of open up As they go along, you you know, you can have a no movement clause early on. And then as it goes, you can allow him to provide a list of teams he doesn't want to go to. And to give yourselves more options, you can say, like, look, tell us the eight places you would absolutely hate to go. And you can exclude those, and then we'll trade you somewhere else. And then finally, there's the long-term injured reserve option. I've been more cautious about this in the past, because, you know, long-term injured reserve should imply that you're too injured to keep playing hockey. However, there is no hockey player to my knowledge that's ever existed in the history of the world who wasn't at least fairly injured past age 30. And I'm starting to suspect you could quite, quite plausibly argue with pretty much any player that, well, his health would be better if he didn't play. Uh, his health has impaired his ability to perform. And so if you can argue that, you can sort of make a case for he should be able to go on LTIR. And the league does not seem all that keen on challenging even some of the iffier designations, like Henrik Zetterberg, for example, who got too injured to play at exactly the right time. (laughs) So there are kind of some escape hatches or hedges that you can put around these deals to try and make them more palatable. I would expect the Leafs to employ them if they do you're still eating a certain amount of risk. That's the point, is you are going to be signing a contract with a guy who is going to be well into his 30s by the end of it. That's risky. And so you have to decide, is it more important that we have this steadying defensive presence with us now in the next couple of years while we still have prime John Tavares or late prime John Tavares? Or is it more important that we don't risk hamstringing ourselves later on in the deal? Now, I don't mean to talk about this as if it's inevitable that Jake Muzzin is going to fall off a cliff. I mean, I think it's it, it, not. It, it's, but it kind of is. it's a pronounced risk. Yeah. yeah. Like it's... It, it would be very optimistic to assume he's still going to be a quite effective NHL player. Or should I say, it's very optimistic to think he'll be worth his cap hit in year five. Yeah, very optimistic. Yeah, it's it, it's, and you're accepting that. That's part, that's just the risk that you've decided to take on is a trade off for having the player now.
0: Yeah, it's it's a cost of doing business, right? I mean, the reality is, you can't you can't build a team out of RFA deals, superstar contracts, and ELCs. It's essentially not possible. And the mm-hmm. reality is, the Leafs are going to have a hole at defense, and they don't have many resources besides possibly cap space to fill that hole. So what do you do, right? Is the answer, make your team worse? Because we are probably worse next year without Jake Musson than with Jake Musson, Even if he's only, you know, an average second pairing guy. That's an average second pairing guy we don't really have yet, right? Like, is 20-year-old Rasmus Sandin going to be ready for that? I don't know. It's quite a big risk to... It's quite a big risk to go into a season... And have that as your primary option without much backup for, you know, or much contingency for if that goes wrong. At the same time, by signing Muzzin, you're you're kind of offloading that risk to a future year. You're saying, well, I'm prioritizing next year over 2022 or 2023 Mm -hmm. when Muzzin is probably not going to be a very good, good player anymore or, or certainly not worth his cap hit right the reality is muzzin has been a good second pairing defenseman for most of his career um and you can point this out with john Tavares is probably not going to be worth his cap hit by the end of his contract there's a couple differences there Tavares is an elite player which muzzin is not so he is a lot mm-hmm. further to fall if john Tavares is 80 percent of john Tavares, he's a second liner or even a low-end mm-hmm. first liner if Muzzin is 80% of Jake Muzzin, he might be a third-pairing defenseman. Right. And then, secondly, um, getting Taveras for nothing but cap space, it, it's its just kind of a... It's a huge boon to your team because you don't have to spend any resources besides the cap, which is meant to be spent. There's no prize for uh, have, building a contender with unused cap, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what does apply to Muzzin. Right? Where... The Leafs, if they retain Muslim, they don't have to spend any other resources. And they don't have many other resources to spend at this point.
1: Yeah, like, you know, they're out there first. There are long-term consequences, potentially, of dealing out of the first round again and again and again. You know, in a couple years down the line, your prospect pool is probably thinner. And so, the question becomes... If you're looking at Jake Muzzin and saying, okay, do I want to take on more downside risk in three, four, five years to be better next year than I would otherwise be, you have to weigh how important is next year versus the long-term risks. And next year is a a go-for-it year. This should be a go-for-it year, frankly, up to a point. Not that I would want to sacrifice for it because, again, we're scrabbling for a playoff spot still given the start we gave ourselves. But you have a prime and improving Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander. You have a still excellent John Tavares. Pause. Some people will tell you otherwise. No, John Tavares is awesome and is still performing really, really well. So there's a real argument that the greatest risk of all is not maximizing your chances. In you know 2020s 2021. I think eventually I would say yes, extend Jake Muzzin. I don't know what other options are out there. It's a shame he doesn't shoot right. Uh, catching me to joke about Cage Zamen, like the parallel universe version of Jake Muzzin who does shoot right. That would be really, really nice. But he's going to be tough to come by. And so. I think that I would rather keep him, do all the things that I talked about to mitigate the downside risk as much as possible, which is not fully, and bite the bullet.
0: Yeah, it, that's the thing. There's no easy decision here. Um, even signing mm-hmm. Muzzin, it, it puts us in a bit of a weird spot because we're going to have four left defensemen who we, in theory, want to play. Right? Mm-hmm. And Riley, Muzzin. Sandine and Dermot, and more than that, Riley and Muzzin are going to be getting top, you know, top four minutes. So where does that leave Sandine? We don't want Sandine toiling on the bottom pair next year. Like the idea, one of the reasons we're so excited about him is because he can be. It's possible he can be a top four guy soon. Right now, mm-hmm. is is it is it a smart move to? Kind of pin your hopes on that probably not but you also don't want to block his progression right because he could
1: the question be, becomes how well can Sandin play right side yeah
0: and is that what's best for him or is you know moving someone else to the right side what's best for him um and what's best for the team right is moving sandy to the right side the best for the team i don't know so it, it mm-hmm. creates all these kind of complicated issues um so yeah, it's just it's not clear to me at all. I'm going to have very conflicted feelings if and when we sign Jake Muzzin. And the reports are we are trying. Um, there was a hilarious comment by by Chris Johnston on the on like headlines uh, the second intermission mm-hmm. segment of Hockey Night in Canada where he's like, you know, the Leafs and Muzzin have been trying for an extension, but it'll be difficult because of the cap. And it's like, well, no shit. Like <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's D- the
1: only reason it would be difficult
0: <laughs> did, did they just realize it's like <laughs> Duba sent a, an <laughs> an offer to Muzzin's agents like oh fuck there's
1: a cap god damn it I forgot about that thing that's why everyone was so mad about the Mitch Marner thing
0: oh <laughs> right so it, it's oh, I man. mean it's, to me you know I, I don't think that was a fully I, like that was Johnson obviously knows that I think that was kind of a message more or less from the Leafs front office saying, all right, Jake Muzzin's agent, get back to us with a real offer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think it's a way of saying like, look, we love you as a player. We really like you. We'd like you to stay here, but there are constraints on us that will prevent us signing you. If you insist on a certain cost and it has nothing to do with us wanting you, it's the world we have to live in. And so, yeah, I do think that's a bit of a, hey, buddy, you got to come to the table a little bit here. Ultimately, if Jake Muzzin wants to go to market, he can probably get more money from somebody than he can from us. Mm -hmm. I would guess. You know, I could be wrong about that, but he's the kind of guy that a lot of teams are going to like, and we're not the only team that is trying to balance winning soon versus still being good later. The question is, does he like it here? He's apparently pretty happy. He's very well liked in the dressing room. He's a bit of a a secondary leader. You know, there's a lot to, to like about him and he has to do a balancing act of his own, which is how much of what he wants will he get in Toronto versus the money that he might get elsewhere. And how much is that a surplus? So it's, it's a fraught decision for sure. I I lean towards doing it, but I think you're certainly right. There is a scenario and it's not a extremely faint chance where the end of this deal is bad. Where right. we go back to having a contract that's a bit of a punchline. Right now the Leafs actually do not have any contracts, excepting the ones that are on LTIR and are expiring. That I would consider especially bad. I think the Mitch Marner one is an overpay, but it's an overpay for a fantastic player in his twenties. And beyond that, like it's a pretty clean cap sheet, all things considered. And you know, well, Cody's CC, but he's expiring. So, you know, that is in- intimidating to kind of contemplate. We're back into the point where we're taking risks on players who are aging and potentially aging badly. And it's also an acknowledgement that the future is now. This is no longer about trying to be good in five years this is about trying to win the cup next season
0: yes and complicating this is uh, we're probably not going to have time to just dis- to discuss this in full but the leafs goalie situation comes into play here mm-hmm. freddy anderson is signed for one like he expires after next season correct yeah so after that like our goalie situation is a gigantic question mark do you want to resign anderson um after next year he'll be in his early 30s the track record of Goalie's aging is not a great one. Goalie performance is hard to predict in general. Anderson will be in pretty high demand um, as a fairly consistent and consistently excellent goaltender. What happens then? And you have kind of actually an even bigger version of this particular dilemma of, do we pay now for a contract that is probably going to be terrible later? Or do we roll the dice and risk wasting a year of prime big three for like on a, on a bad body. And there's not an easy answer to that. There really isn't. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's actually even heightened there because goaltenders in general are so high volatility.
1: Yeah. Like right now there is no one who was at all plausible to take the job in the Leafs organization in 2021. Like, not at all. Joseph Wall is kind of scuffling through a year in the HL. That's fine for him. He's got a lot of runway in front of him. I'm not worried about that. But we don't have anyone on the way up who we're looking at and saying is, hey, maybe this guy can do it. Like, it it would require a quantum leap in development from one of our goalies. And hey, who knows? But right now, it's Freddy, or you have to go out and buy a replacement for Freddy. And... That's going to be expensive. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, that is actually maybe the scariest of all of these decisions to me. Because you can live without Jake Muzzin. You know, maybe you're worse, but it's like you'll put together a defense core and you'll kind of make something work there. If you have really bad goaltending, nothing else really matters. Mm-hmm. You can't win. That's it. You're dead. And so, that is a very difficult decision to kind of face up to. I mean, ask the Carolina Hurricanes, who had a couple years where they just could not get a save. And it did not matter that they had 56% Corsi.
0: Yep. It's it, it's not easy to, to run a team, mm-hmm. right? Um, because the reality is, you have to take a risk at some point.
1: Mm-hmm
0: and it, you know that can blow up on you even if you measure the risk and even if you understand the risk and even if you know you're making a decision that carries some downside to it and you think on average what you're going what you're doing works i mean life is a sample size of one yeah right shit happens
1: yeah and you know you can make a lot of quite good decisions and they can blow up on you and then as a general manager you've run your string you know, you don't get infinite kicks at the can Yeah. to say, okay, but if you reran these four years over and over again, I would have succeeded 65% of the time. All you get is kind of too bad, so sad, go find another job. And I'm sure Kyle Dubas is painfully aware of that. Every decision he makes now is, you know, soundtrack by a ticket clock. It's always with an awareness that, okay, I've, fired the coach. I've taken ownership of pretty much everything about this team now. And every single step that tries to get them to a real level of contention is fraught, is risky, is a very demanding uh, transaction to try and complete. So, yeah. I I mean, again, I say I would take Jake Muzzin at what I anticipate his contract to be. And I'm, I'm thinking five by six. But... Sorry, five years at six million. But that, <laughs> it's intimidating. You know, just looking mm-hmm. at this cap sheet, looking at the constraints uh, that we're operating under, there's no one really riding in on a white horse to save us unless Rasmus Sandin takes another jump. Unless he can be and a top four defenseman this...
0: next year. And yeah. I-, I don't see how we're going to have the data to make that claim. Um, he's playing like 13 minutes a night on average
1: mm-hmm so. this is uh one other thing that we were going to discuss actually uh Nanda nandakumar who is a very well-respected statistician she's now with the philadelphia eagles because you know why would a hockey team hire a brilliant hockey statistician it has to be a football team instead um but you, you know her talents were obviously appreciated by them but she did write publicly for a time on hockey and she talked about the rate at which defensemen make the NHL. And about 30% of first round draft picks have made the NHL seemingly full-time by the end of their draft year plus two, which is what Sandin is in now. Um, Now Sandin got picked 29th. So he was at the very back end of the first round and a lot of those players who are playing more are picked ahead of him. So by any measurement, I think you have to say Sandin is well ahead of the curve for his draft spot he's overachieving but at the same time it's like a lot of guys can work in sheltered third pair usage I think we're kind of going through another stage in the hype cycle with Travis Dermott right now where we had someone who came up who was quite effective in third pair usage and now we're starting to wonder okay is there more there or not he's got a contract negotiation coming up is he a throw-in in a trade some people just treat him as if he's kind of in the way of uh, Rasmus Sandin, for example, because he's the, the next left defenseman after Muzzin and Riley. It is tough to sort out what we could really expect from Sandin going for, because the step up to the next level is so demanding, as impressive as he's been. You know, it's impressive that he's here at all, but that's not the same as he can then take the next step with great ease. So, yeah, yeah, it's not, I I mean, watching him, yes, sorry, I was just going to say watching him at times, he is really impressive. He obviously is a talented player. I have to say, and homework goggles aside, I think he will be a top four defenseman at some point. The question is only when is, can he do it next year or does it take more time?
0: And it's also still sometimes. Yeah, sorry. I'm interrupting there, but it's also a question of like, what type of top four defenseman is he? Like Tyson Berry probably mm-hmm. plays in the top four of most teams, but I don't want Tyson Berry matching up against top lines. Agreed. Right, and, and you, you can't you, you know, can't build the entire defense core out of Tyson Berries. I don't think, because his skill set will pro- lead to, <laughs> at some point, you know one of those Tyson Berries is getting crushed.
1: Yes, and you know Rasmus Sinding is not physically large. Now he's he's also you know he's only nineteen going on twenty. He's not physically mature either. There's time for him to bulk up a bit and put on muscle. But he's not, you know, he's not Jake Buzzin. They're different sorts of players. I do think we're seeing some growing pains maybe with Sandine, Where you can see every now and then he wants to make a really ambitious play. Because he can see it and how it's supposed to work. And he'll risk it and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. And he'll make a giveaway. And that's okay. It's all about a learning process and even when he's totally and fully established, good playmaking players, especially on the back end, are going to occasionally make mistakes where you wince. Jake Gardner is the quintessential example. But there is going to be an adjustment period where he figures out what exactly he can and can't get away with at the NHL level in a given situation and all of that takes time. None of that is a knock on him and his development curve, which again has been everything we could have hoped for. But when you're contemplating, am I okay going into next season, assuming Rasmus Sandin is my second pair left defenseman, that's something you have to take into account is, is he there yet? And I don't know. Maybe he could do it and hack it at a pretty respectable level. Maybe he couldn't. And if we're using him in any kind of shutdown role, that, I do suspect, is beyond him right now. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. What a cheery way to recap a, a week in which the Leafs went 3-0 <laughs> and moved from out of, a play, out of the playoffs to in the playoffs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we talked about all like the, the fraught and the fear and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, well, Let's that's... win the goddamn game against Florida on Monday. That's all we need right now. And this is the
0: reality of running... A team that's trying to win a cup it's easy to rebuild
1: right um because there are plenty of teams that rebuild every year but there's only one team that wins a cup simple as that yeah there's this um rebuilding is yeah
0: there's this quote from the musical hamilton where um (laughs) the title character alexander hamilton is uh essentially complaining about the his inability to pass um, a debt plan through the United States uh and at one point George Washington uh says you know winning the Revolutionary War was easy governing's harder right and mm. it, it's an exaggeration because winning the war if you know anything about the Revolutionary War was not easy at all um it was a real struggle <laughs> um but yeah it, 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 I kind of feel that way with rebuilding right like rebuilding properly it's not easy um Teams mess it up. It's a skill to do it well. It can be difficult. But then maintaining that winning team is harder. Because there's a lot mm-hmm. of decisions you have to make that you realize, look, this could go badly, but we need to try and win. We can't voluntarily make ourselves worse in the hope of like a perpetual on-the-way-up feeling.
1: Yeah. This was something—you saw this a lot uh, in Washington, where they really had to grapple with— Shit, what do we do? We have these great players and we seem to lose in the second round of the playoffs a hell of a lot. And how do we build around them? Let's bring in a new coach. Let's try a new system. Let's do all sorts of things. And they just kept having to hack at it over and over and over again until eventually they won a cup probably a lot later than most people anticipated. Like they won a cup eight years after I thought they were arguably the best team in the league. It's tough. You know, it is very tough to consistently contend in that manner. And that's just kind of the nature of the beast here. And to take it a step further, there are very good teams. We're seeing the twilight of San Jose now. But they were once a fantastic team and they never won. Despite making a lot of very smart moves and being very good over an extended period. I I think a lot of the fear that kind of backgrounds... Decisions like Jake Muzzin is the awareness that, you know, maybe we'll do everything we can. We'll make sensible and well-reasoned decisions and it won't work. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it is. So sports are a mistake. Enjoy the Super Bowl, everybody. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the The other thing is, and this is actually more of a thing for about the hockey Twitter people who will inevitably, like, post a picture of Jake Muzzin's... RAPM or his threat and be like, oh, you know, that's not a great deal to sign him to. What's the alternative? Right? Yeah. You you evaluate deals in the context of what the next best alternative is. What's the next best alternative to not signing Jake Musin? And again, yeah. go win a trade. It's not an actionable plan.
1: I, I have to admit, and this is fully my still enduring bias in favor of people who actually have to be The man in the arena, to use the old quote, the people who actually have to do the job in terms of where you have to make decisions and you have to own the cohesive result. That's a lot, a lot harder than just saying, oh, this was a bad move. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, that's an overpay. You know, there is a lot that you have to live with there in terms of risk, in terms of maximizing your window in terms of deciding when to go for it. And you may not necessarily get rewarded for it. Now, none of that means I'm ever going to stop dunking on really bad GMs. I wanna be clear, that would be a deprivation that I'm not willing to undertake, but it is hard to make everything hang together. Right now, I, I think Kyle Dubas is doing a good job. I'm broadly impressed with what he's done, but I wouldn't be surprised if His next few moves are of the kind where we say, okay, I get it, but that has a lot of risk associated to it, and we just have to embrace that.
0: Yep, pretty much. Neither of us really have a a bad take to discuss this week, do we?
1: No. Uh, (laughs) I mean, and that's kind of remarkable, because, you know, you go on Twitter, and you get mad three to four times a minute, but... Yeah, I didn't see anyone that was, like, fully at the level of a developed take. Uh, I had an internal debate, and then I discussed it with you about whether it's worthwhile dunking on Grant McCagg. But I kind of decided that was fish in a barrel, and that anyone who's listening to us does not rely on Grant McCagg for opinions. If you do, please reconsider your choices. So I will opt out of the bad take for this week.
0: Yeah, I, I... It's hard to find bad takes that are not just shooting fish in a barrel
1: mm-hmm the really fun bad takes are the ones that are a totally insane or b kind of different you know it's not just being wrong in the same old way that they're all regularly wrong that we're all regularly wrong i'm wrong a bunch it's like you have to have that little that little flavor of just being totally nuts that's what makes a fun (laughs) bad take so we'll keep our eyes open in the forthcoming week for one like that
0: yes yeah we feel like we've uh we failed you as listeners by not not giving you enough (laughs) of us just like being mean about people making having
1: really bad hockey opinions (laughs) isn't that what life's really about Uh, what more is there to what else could we aspire yeah so
0: yeah all right so um that'll just about wrap it up for us then Thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fodeman's stuff at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fodeman. We'll see you next week.